Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what is up, my friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. We're on episode 131, and we are glad you're here. We've got a great guest for you today. We're going to be talking with Joe Sanek about using speaking to build your consulting business. So this is something I'm really excited about because... I know for a lot of people, they want to be full-time speakers, and this is the bread and butter of what you want to do and what you're building. But I know there's also people who'd say, you know, I don't necessarily want to speak full-time. I don't want to do 50, 60, 70 events a year. I'd love to do 5, 10, 15, you know, something like that. And use speaking more as a lead generation source for other parts of your business, whether it's coaching or consulting. And so Joe, in our conversation today, he definitely shares exactly how he is doing this. So Joe runs a site called Practice of the Practice, where he basically helps counselors and therapists build their business. And so he, he does similar to what we do for speakers. So it's great conversation. I really enjoyed this with Joe. So we talked through how he uses speaking as lead generation in his consulting business. We talk about how he uses speaking to grow his business, how he's established himself as a keynote speaker in a very, very small niche. And we also talk about how he transitioned from full-time employment to full-time self-employment. And I think that's going to be really helpful for maybe you are in a similar spot trying to think through what that transition might look like in your circumstance. So great stuff from Joe. Hey, let me remind you, if you haven't already, we'd love for you to uh, register for one of our upcoming free trainings where we're teaching all about how to find and book paid speaking engagements. So if you haven't already registered for one of those, you definitely want to stop by freespeakerworkshop.com. Again, that is freespeakerworkshop.com and check that out. Again, we do those every single week. They are live. They are in person. We are answering your questions live. So we'd love for you to sign up and be a part of the next one that we got going on. So again, stop by freespeakerworkshop.com. Okay, let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with my buddy, Joe Sanic. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, my friends? Graham Baldwin here, hanging out with my buddy, Joe Sanok. And today we are going to be talking about how to use speaking in terms of uh, building your consulting business. And a lot of times we think of speaking as just kind of this one-off thing. You go, you speak, end of transaction, but speaking can really be used as lead generation for other pieces of business. And Joe's been using that with consulting in a great way. So excited to chat with you, Joe. How are you today, man? I'm doing awesome. How are you today, Grant? Doing well, doing well. Appreciate you hanging out with us. So let's start with this. Why don't you give us a quick nutshell of your overall business, what kind of speaking you're doing, and how does speaking fit into your overall business? Sure. My business is called Practice of the Practice, and I help counselors in private practice to start, grow, and scale their private practices. It often goes outside of there where it's not just counselors in private practice, but that's my main kind of ideal client. And I got into it because I had this side gig during my full-time job that I just had to pay off student loan debt. And then one year I realized I made more working this side gig than I did doing my full-time job. Nice. And so you were a counselor before on your own or how did the counseling piece come in? 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually a licensed counselor. I'm licensed as a counselor and also as a limited licensed psychologist here in Michigan. I have a group practice where we have several counselors that see kind of traditional depression, anxiety. That business pretty much runs itself at this point. And I only do two or three counseling sessions a week, more just to stay connected and focus on my ideal client. But most of my time now has shifted to the consulting, podcasting, helping people grow their practices. So how much speaking are you doing and how does speaking fit into everything else? If counseling is kind of the, sounds like some of the bread and butter, or at least the kind of the stake in the ground in terms of the, the content piece, then how is speaking fitting into all that? Yeah. So actually I would say the content piece is more on practice of the practice, helping people okay. grow their practices. And so from speaking, I have a weekly or more podcast. I'll do series on that. I'm interviewed frequently on podcasts. And then I really look at strategically where are my ideal clients going to be. And so I take on three or four keynotes a year. I have two little girls. I don't like to travel that much. So I don't want to like get away from them. I know you have kids also. Mm-hmm. And so traveling away, I really, it has to be strategic where it's pretty clear that the financial side, just from the front end or the opportunity around consulting makes sense. And then I'll usually put on my own conference a couple times a year as well where people either fly in to work with me and then I'll bring in another influencer in our field or I'll fly somewhere else. Um, usually with my wife, she'll just come along to hang out and yeah. we'll put on a conference with other influencers in the space. So I'd say I'm speaking probably six to seven times a year at ver- a variety of different conferences, but it really has to line up with my exact ideal client that I'm trying to serve. So it sounds like, and I know one of the things that we've talked about a little bit offline is that for you, speaking is so much more than again, just that one fly in, do the talk, fly out, but it's really, and some ways, it sounds like almost lead generation for other parts of the business. Or if I'm going to go speak, it has to move the needle in other parts of the business and more than just kind of a quote unquote hired gun uh, where I come in and I do the talk and I leave. So would that be accurate? Yeah, I think initially I thought like, I want to go around the country and do all these keynotes and make all this money and have a book. And those are things that people can do. But for me, for someone that has young kids, wants to be at home more than be traveling, it made more sense to kind of look at, well, how is this a lead generation tool? And there's a couple strategies that I use within my keynotes and within my speaking that really helps that out by giving people tremendous value while I'm doing my keynote. And then naturally people say, well, I want more of that. How do I work with Joe individually or in a mastermind group or at one of his individual micro conferences. So how do you identify which events are right for you in terms of, again, it has to be more than just this one engagement and it has to move the needle in other ways. How do you know if it's going to do that before the event even happens? Yeah, I think it starts with making sure that the event planner really understands who I am. Like, have they listened to the podcast? Have they looked at the website? Are they seeing me just as a hired gun or are they pretty clear on my expertise? So Joe, we want you to come because we listen to this podcast and this would help our audience. So do they even know who I am? Uh, Sometimes you get these random requests to come on and do a keynote and it really doesn't align with who you're trying to attract. And for some people, they just want to speak more. And so that may make sense for them. But for me, it doesn't make sense to just go speak to a group of people in insurance, for example, that I could teach them about sales acquisition. I could teach them about how to get leads, how to do online marketing, but it's not really going to be who I want to work with. And so I think starting there, I think then also looking at when you've sketched out your own ideal client, what are the phases that you serve? So for me, I've sketched it out that I help people start a practice, I help people grow a practice, and I help people scale a practice. And so the people that are starting a practice, they're bootstrapping, they're hustling, they're not usually at the conferences that I would speak at because they're not going to be able to afford necessarily consulting, going to these higher-end conferences. And so they're going to look for free tools, they're going to look for podcasts, they're going to look for blog posts. So if it's a conference that's just about starting a practice, I might say, on that side, I need to make sure that the amount that I make is going to be higher 
than if it was one that was aimed at people that are really growing a practice or scaling a practice. And so talking to that conference planner is really important to understand. So who are you trying to attract? Who else is coming? What are the breakout sessions on? If it's advanced social media and it's people that you know, are looking at adding contractors to their practice. If it's for people that want to scale and grow in new ways, and I look at the rest of the conference, like that lines up with my ideal client that is at that, you know, 100K mark or higher and can afford doing consulting with me versus the people that are just bootstrapping and hustling at the beginning. Is that particular market, I don't want to come at this a couple different ways, but is that particular market of speaking primarily to counselors who are looking to build their practice outside looking in, I have zero counseling experience. I know nothing about that specific industry. It seems like it could be a niche space. Are there a lot of opportunities to speak in that? And the reason that I ask is that there are a lot of those type of just sub niches and with niches within niches within niches that outside looking in, you're like, is there enough there that you could make a career out of that? But I mean, obviously you're doing that. So can you give us kind of some sense? Are there quite a few conferences and events around that specific niche of counselors building their practice? I would say that three or four years ago, there weren't. And that's where we started our own conference. We started the most awesome conference. And there wasn't one that was specifically aimed at counselors and private practice. And so we created our own. We rented this big house in La Jolla, California, uh, had about 30 people come out to that, had a really high price point for it. And we really kind of proved the model. And then I think that once that started, we see a lot more consultants either putting on their own conferences or partnering with state organizations to have micro conferences that are a branch off of, say, the American Counseling Association or the you know, Oregon Counseling Association. And so when we do that, I think you have to start with specifically, is there a niche here that is going to serve people's pains? And so for me, that was we aren't taught anything in grad school about marketing or business. So right. we're asked to run this entire counseling practice and we know nothing about this. The things that I've learned about speaking, I've learned from you, things I've learned about passive income, I've learned from Pat Flynn. And it's like, I had to go outside of the counseling space. And so I think starting with in your own space, where are those kind of pain points? And then also who have you learned from? And usually it's outside of your own industry. And then what can you take and then adapt to your own industry? So there's things that I've learned from you that I may speak to somebody else in the counseling world and they're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm like, well, you got to listen to Grant's podcast because that's where I'm getting this information. And then you reframe it within your own context. The second question I think that you had there is, is there an, are there enough people in such a small niche? And I think that's an important question because this truly is a micro niche. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not just counselors, it's counselors that are in private practice. And then for me, I do private pay private practice. I don't take insurance. And so it's even smaller. But when you think about what you really need in regards to consulting clients, I probably only need eight or so a month at the price point that I'm at in order to make a really good living off of it. And yeah. so then if you think about it in regards to people knowing you, there's a whole lot of people that might know you, then there's going to be a you know, smaller amount of people that trust you. And then there's going to be an even smaller amount that partner with you. And if at any level, you can double the amount of people at any of those levels, it's going to double your bottom line. Right, right. So you started to just as a private practice counselor on your own? Yeah. So actually, um, I was working in foster care and I was a foster care supervisor. And I said, you know, I want to pay off some student loan debt. So I started this private practice on the side. Then I got a job at a community college and the side gig started to grow. I added some clinicians to it. So I started this group practice that was growing on the side. And then I kept reading all these business books and I thought, you know, if I want to really scale beyond this small Northern Michigan town, I have to be able to do that more than just a group practice. And so that's where I started practice of the practice. And it was literally me just being a co-learner. So I'd read books, I'd write a blog about it and I'd have an affiliate link back to Amazon. I'd make 
five cents a month off of these random (laughs) things. And then I'd blog some more. And then I said, you know, no one's doing podcasting in this counseling space right now. So I should at least give it a whirl. So I said, I'll give it a year and see if I get some traction. I got a little bit of traction. And then when I really started getting interviews from kind of higher counseling people and, you know, pushing myself to ask these people that were leaders in the field that always would say yes, that's when it really got some traction. So about a year in, then it really started to grow. I had my first five figure month. And then within five months, I think I was at 20 grand a month. And, you know, it just keeps growing from there. So whenever you were kind of starting your, it sounds like online and offline brand about the practice of the practice and helping other counselors build their practice, and you decided, okay, I want to do some speaking were you concerned about, I guess, let me ask you this. Was it difficult to find potential gigs? Because like you mentioned, the opportunities have only sound like existed for a couple of years now. So yeah. what were you doing early on just to say, this is what I want to speak on and I'm starting to look for opportunities and there just aren't many. Like, like kind of talk us through that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think starting with what already exists. So right then there was a ton of therapy speaking opportunities. One unique specialty I had, I had started a therapeutic sailing program where we took at-risk kids sailing and did counseling on the sailboat. Oh, wow. And so I looked for places that I could speak about experiential approaches to therapy. So team building activities, family activities that make counseling less boring for kids. And so I reached out to, there was a place called Forest View down in Grand Rapids. There was uh, the Michigan Home-Based Family Services Association. And really it was bootstrapping, doing breakout sessions, often unpaid or really low paid. But the connections I got from that, then people said, Joe's an amazing speaker. He always, his surveys, he was one of the top speakers here. That then gave me some credibility when I wanted to do speaking that was more aimed at the business side. Uh, It also helped me test out some different things with kind of a safer audience that already knew me versus just jumping into a whole new market. And so I would test out in some of those. I'd talk about, okay, so you're a home-based therapist. I want to talk a little bit about social media, what kids are going through right now, and how you could use that as a therapist to help these kids get more content around it. So I'm testing these business principles in an environment that I was already invited into that was therapeutic. So looking at what already exists doing speaking there and testing out kind of where you're headed for me was a great way to find what content therapists resonated with. Yeah, I like that. One of the things that we talk about and teach sometimes is that what we call that the Trojan horse method, right? Where you've got the here's what I want to talk about, but here's what groups and organizations are actually hiring speakers to talk about. And what's the blend? What's the overlap there? So it sounds like you were kind of doing something similar. Of Here's what organizations and groups are in the counseling therapeutic space. This is what they're hiring speakers to actually talk about. Here's what I want to talk about. How do we blend those two things so I can at least get my foot in the door? And like you said, even just test some material with a live audience to figure out, is this interesting? Is this connecting? Is this resonating? Because when we have like, when we're sitting in our offices, just with ideas of what we want to talk about, it's just an educated guess as to is this what people are actually looking for? Or is this just what I think people are looking for? So when you're doing some of those just breakouts, are you doing a lot of those locally? How are you determining which ones to take? Meaning that you're in Michigan, it may not make sense for you to go do a free workshop in California for a couple of days. So how are you kind of determining which ones to take, which one's free, which one's not free? How are you kind of thinking that through? Yeah, at the beginning, it was really, I just want to speak as much as I can. I got to get this experience so that people know me, people understand me. And uh, if I take a little <coughs> bit of a hit, financially, then that's how it is. Also, that's the value of having a full-time job when you have a side gig. So I was a foster care supervisor. So if I was asked to speak somewhere, that place said, we'll pay you to go do that because you're going to be promoting our name. So I'm learning to speak better 
on this agency's dime that's also then promoting them. So it becomes a win for everybody. So the organization that's putting on the conference, they get a cheaper speaker that's quality. I get the experience. And then that nonprofit ended up getting extra exposure that they wanted in front of that audience too. And so early on, it was finding those like triple wins for people so that I didn't have to kind of fund the entire thing myself. I wasn't just on my own. I'm going to try to do this thing. It was this planned kind of leave from full-time work where I could build those skills underneath a certain role that I was being paid for. And my boss knew I was doing all this. It wasn't like there was anything shady. I think being very open with your supervisor is important that, Hey, I want to speak more. I want to be a keynote speaker nationwide. I have these opportunities here within Michigan or in Illinois or Ohio. Um, What do you think about me taking these on uh, within this role versus through kind of my side gig? And most supervisors were thrilled for me to be doing this national speaking. That makes their organization looks so much better. Right, right. How are you deciding then as the business is continuing to grow, maybe you're having more opportunities or there's more potential opportunities on the table. How are you determining, does it make sense to keep doing all of these free breakouts? I feel like I've had enough at-bats. I've had enough reps. I need to start doing something that's going to make it worth my while. I've built enough relationships here. I've got enough quote unquote social capital in this space. So now what do I do? So like, how are you determining where that threshold is where I can't just keep doing free gig after free gig after free gig. It has to start moving the needle in some way in my business. Yeah. Well, I mean, in 2012, everything kind of hit the fan with our family. And so that really clarified a whole lot. That year, my daughter had heart surgery. And two weeks afterward, we you know, heard everything was great. It went wonderful. And then I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And so we were just sent like right back into the medical world. And so for me, I was always that year asking myself, why am I spending time on a blog post when I, my daughter's about to have heart surgery? Or why am I doing a podcast or dreaming about marketing things for counselors when I'm about to have cancer treatment? And so I always had that kind of, I need to be moving the needle forward and justify why I'm spending time on this. So even the free gigs had to serve a clear purpose. It wasn't just for the experience. It was, there's something that's going to happen here. My best guess, of course, there's times that things didn't happen, but even ones that I did free gigs with uh, four years ago, I just recently got a substantially paid keynote gig for this coming year. And so over time, I think it tends to be, especially when you're first starting out, it tends to be more messy than maybe it needs to be where you realize, oh my gosh, I scheduled out. 12 of these free gigs this summer and my family's coming into town and now I have to be out of town or I have to cancel a gig, you start to kind of get a a pattern for what you can handle and what you can't handle. And I think that that's true in what you're charging as a consultant. You'll realize it just doesn't feel worth it to charge $400 an hour. I got to bump this up more. It doesn't feel good to charge $900 an hour, like whatever your per hour is. Or you may say, I'm sick of this one-to-one consulting. I need to move to -to one-to-many, to groups. So The emotional side of it, really being aware of what you're feeling, what's giving you energy, what you're showing up for, and you're saying, I just don't want to be doing this. That's where I think you have to then go back to what's the revenue stream that's feeding this? And do I need to cut that off or do I need to adjust the prices or do I need to say, no, I just can't do that anymore? Quick question. You and your daughter good now? Yes, we are. Both my daughters ended up having heart surgery. She's fine. I've been cancer free for... uh, three years now and wow. they don't need to see me for another two years. So wow. it, it's one of those things I'd never wish on anybody, but I learned so much. Yeah. Okay. I want to come back to something else you said there. So 
you talked about how as the speaking business is growing, as life is happening, that you're kind of figuring it out as you go. And that's one of the nice things and one of the really difficult things, not just about speaking, but just business in general, is there's no playbook of this is how you have to do it. And there's no right or wrong way. You know, So from speaking standpoint, you said you do six, seven events a year. There's people that do 60 or 70 events a year and everything in between. So you may have do a handful of gigs for free and you may do a handful for significant amounts of money. So again, there's no right or wrong way to do it and how it all fits together. So as you are kind of navigating that for yourself and figuring out speaking is not my only thing, it fits into the business and it moves the needle in some way. How are you kind of emotionally figuring that out of not just like with on the business side of how this is moving the needle, but also like you said, with life in terms of how much is too much, you know, how much being gone, the amount of you may be gone, maybe too much or not enough for someone else and someone else's family and their family and situation and relationship. So how are you kind of determining that emotionally and and just internally? Yeah, I think for me, it starts with a conversation with my wife, Christina. So when I was working my full-time job and still doing all the podcasting, consulting and private practice outside of it, I was working 50, 60 hours a week. And as this stuff grew on the side, I was so excited. I'd be like, I heard about this on a podcast. I could do this. And there was this moment when she said, I need to know when business Joe is here because I'll support and listen. Uh, And I need to know when like family Joe is here uh, because I don't want to hear about it sometimes. And so we set some very clear boundaries where by noon on Friday, like business is done. Uh, So I have to have all my email kind of checked and I can't check my email until Sunday afternoon. I can't listen to podcasts. I can't, and this isn't that my wife told me I can't do this. This is that I know I have to do this. And I naturally go through this kind of purging phase where on a Saturday morning, I'll grab my phone. I'll like go to look on Twitter and I see the little red dot and I'm like, wait, nope, it's Saturday. It's time to play with trucks and trains and things with my daughters. We need to plan a hike. And then what often happens is I have to set even more boundaries where it's like, okay, I'm going to figure something out with my family or my friends that's going to take me away from this really exciting thing. When you love your job, when you love your business, when you feel like you're making an impact on the world, it's really easy to just get sucked back into it. And so we'll schedule things like having friends over for dinner, play some board games, things that I can't be thinking about business while I'm doing that. And then that naturally every weekend leads into this presence phase where I'm fully present, I'm there, I'm with my friends, I'm with my family, I'm not thinking about the business. So I think what people have to do as they grow is really look at what are those boundaries and rhythms that they can set up in their own life. So that might be vacations, that might be every weekend having certain boundaries, but even just looking at a counselor in private practice, take out the consulting side, if I'm going to step away from my email for a weekend, I may have somebody that's in crisis. Yeah. I may have someone that go is suicidal and has to go in the hospital. What's going to happen? What's the backup plan? So then you have to work back and say, well, what are the processes? Do I have a virtual assistant that checks my email? Do I have a backup phone number? You have to then kind of reverse engineer it. I want to take the weekend off every single weekend. And now how am I going to do that? I'm going to have to have someone check my email over the weekend. or I'm going to have to have phone calls go to somebody else. And that's where you become more of a CEO of your business beyond just a speaker that you're looking at the infrastructure to build that ideal life that you want beyond just speaking or blogging or podcasting. Yeah, I like the idea. Like you really have to be proactive with it. And it's not just, mm-hmm. it's Friday at noon, so we just shut her down. It's like, no, no, I, I have to think about Friday at noon long before Friday at noon happens and what's going to happen in this situation or what's going to happen in that circumstance or how do I handle this or that. So I really like how you've thought that through. So, okay, I'm curious with this. So you, you've talked about how, again, speaking just one small part of the overall business that you have now, 
like, why do you keep speaking, right? Because there's so many other things that you do, and there's other ways that you could make money in the business. So what are the primary wins for you with speaking? When I look at when I meet someone in person, face-to-face, that relationship to me always goes into something bigger at a faster rate. There's something about seeing someone face-to-face in person that's different than even looking at each other on a screen. And so for me, meeting my own clients at these places oftentimes leads to that they come to another one of my conferences, or they come and do more coaching with me, or they join a mastermind group. It's not just about, for me, the financial side, but there's something about the emotional side of actually connecting in person with people. And I would say that's probably the biggest benefit. There's this one guy who he's a consultant that he came to one of the events down in Asheville, North Carolina. So he does consulting similar to me, but he wanted to learn from me how to kind of keep leveling up. I had seen him on LinkedIn for probably two years. He would like share everything I did. He just seemed like this like raving fan. Mm -hmm. I finally meet him at this conference and like he and my wife actually like hit it off. They're chatting it up. Like his wife was going through some really big things in regards to her health. And like, so they just like had this great connection. And so we're all sitting there having pints of beer. He becomes a consulting client, but now he's the kind of person that if he lived locally, like we would hang out. Like I know we would hang out. Yeah. And so he just signed up for my mastermind group and it's great that I'm going to make that money, but it's more important to me that I have this person that I can really trust that if someone says, Hey, what should I do? That it's not just me and that mastermind giving advice. It's him. And so the biggest benefit to me in these conferences is the personal side of the relationships that develop outside of it. It's one of those things that I've found over the years, and you kind of touched on this, that there are a lot of ancillary benefits to speaking that can be really hard to quantify right? Because oftentimes as, as entrepreneurs, we look at things and as numbers and dollar and cents and you went and you spoke and you got a check, or you didn't get a check and here's the amount and here's how you justify it or don't justify it. But there are relationships that form and business that comes maybe months or years later as a result of that speaking gig. But that one individual gig, it's really hard to quantify in that moment. Have you found that to be the case? Absolutely. And I think that a lot of times if you're just starting out, you don't think through everything off stage. Mm -hmm. And so the moment you get there, are you getting there half an hour before you speak? Or are you getting there the night before where you get to meet the conference planner? You might bring them chocolates from your hometown, like really treat them like they're amazing. Develop that relationship because they're going to need future speakers at different events. Do you get to know the other leaders that are there? Do you get off the stage and then jump in your car and go home? Or do you stick around for lunch and just chat it up with people? I think having that personal and approachable side to me is where I really see the real benefit. It's great to be on the stage. It's great to have people say, oh, that was an amazing speech, but that's a blip in their radar. But if they feel something that I'm authentic, even if it's six people eating dried out chicken at the lunch table, like that goes so much farther than anything I could ever say on stage. And it's hard to know oftentimes how those conversations or relationships lead to something in the future of that person that you had lunch with, with the dry chicken, that either they signed up for something later, or they have a friend who, you know, I'm starting my counseling practice and I'm looking for, oh, I met this guy, Joe, we had chicken years ago. You need to check out what he's up to. Just those random type of things that it's so hard to reverse engineer. But it seems like, again, the in-person, the speaking can really lead to a lot of that. Now, One of the things that we touched on earlier was that you use speaking as one way to build your private consulting practice. So what are you doing when it comes to I'm on stage, I'm speaking, or even I'm off stage? How are you generating consulting clients from your speaking? Yeah. So I really try within the talk to anchor in that I do consulting and not in an obnoxious way, but 
if I'm talking about ROI, for example, I'll say, all right, so we want to think about your return on investment. And this doesn't just mean that I give this much money and I want to make more money, but your return on investment of time. And so I might springboard into lifestyle. So I'll say, when I'm working with my consulting clients, we will look at how much is their average client worth? And then we walk through that process. And this is brand new content oftentimes for counselors because they have like no business background. Mm -hmm. And then what we do is we say, we're going to put money into this and then we're going to test it. We're going to analyze it. And then we're going to change as we go. So I'm walking them through kind of the consulting process, giving them the tools for them to do it on their own. But then oftentimes what happens is they get all this information from a speech and then they try it and they get stuck. And who are they going to naturally go to? They may just email me and say, hey, I got stuck on the ROI thing. I used your how to leave your job calculator and this and this. And then they say, I I need a little bit of help. And then I'll email them back, give them some tips, send them some YouTube videos. And then what happens is you, again, develop that relationship. I know I think about when I've been at conferences and there's people that I look up to, whether it's podcasters or bloggers or other people that are farther along in the game than me. When I meet them in person and they are genuine, they're authentic, they talk to me, their mind isn't in a million different directions, but they're fully present. Those are the people I want to follow more. Those are the people that I want to, if I'm going to start giving money to consulting or something else, I'm going to go to them. Whereas the person that you know is kind of on their high horse and moving to the next thing, like those aren't the people that I'm going to want to invest my time and money into. And so when I'm on the stage, I want to have that authentic self by telling stories about my life, telling stories that people can relate to, really trying to be the guide to people and helping them be successful. To me, that's where if you can do that from the stage, people are going to assume that that's what your consulting looks like as well. Are you making any direct calls to action for if you'd like to hire me as a consultant, here's your next steps? Or is it more just kind of those passive mentionings of you being a consultant? It's more that I say when I do consulting or if someone hired me for consulting um, from the stage, usually it's here's something that I think will serve you. So go over to practiceofthepractice.com forward slash ideal client. I've got a webinar all about how to identify your ideal client and then what your next steps will be. So then it gets them into something that continues to build that trust, gives them those next steps, really helps them understand, hey, if you did nothing other than implement what you learned here, That'd be awesome. If you want to work together, go check out this video, go check out this checklist, talk to me afterward if you have extra questions. And then in those conversations afterward, that's where the people will be more likely to make a decision. And oftentimes have right then said, all right, how do I give you the money to start? Let's schedule next week. I literally had that happen right after the end of a conference where so I sat around for an extra half hour afterward with someone and we sketched out his whole plan, scheduled his first meeting. And the next week we were off and running. Very cool. So it sounds like remembering it's a relationship business. And so instead of just going for the kill in terms of, hey, I'm a consultant and you can hire me and yada, yada, and here's your next steps. It's more, hey, here's another free tool. Here's another free resource. If you want to learn some more on this, here's some next steps. And it sounds like it's just kind of, a, again, remembering that this is a long-term relationship building process and not just, quote unquote, going for the kill right out of the gate. Yeah. And you have to remember somebody hired you to come speak to serve their conference. And so if you're up there and it comes across like you're just pitching your consulting because you got this keynote, that doesn't make that conference planner feel good. That doesn't make the audience feel good. Like this guy's just trying to get consulting clients. You really want to have a dynamic speech that's full of great stories and points and research that is engaging so that the brain is naturally firing how we know it fires evolutionarily during your speech. And then people are going to naturally trust you because of that. 
Yeah. One other thing I wanted to ask you about is you were building your own private practice for a little while. Then you started practice of the practice where you're teaching counselors how to build their business. What was that transition like, especially as you're going from, because I think there's a lot of speakers who are, I've got my corporate gig or I've got one thing going and I'm trying to transition into away from that and build my speaking or just my business and, and whatever service. How did you kind of navigate that and make that transition from full-time employed to full-time self-employed? Yeah. For me, my wife and I are big numbers people. We've always tried to be debt-free. We paid off our student loans early. It's like we have like eight years left on paying off our house. And so we're really, I think we try to be really smart about the money that no matter what level we're at that we've been given. And so we, more me than my wife, she was ready for me to leave about a year earlier than I was. (laughs) Um, But I had to emotionally kind of realize that I was okay with it. She's a stay-at-home mom. I'm the only one bringing in money. Financially, she works hard, but we had healthcare through the college, all these different things that were factors, especially with daughters that had heart surgery. So for me, it was looking at our family situation. So what does it take for the Sanok family just to survive in a month? And then adding up the costs as well to keep my practice running. And then looking at what's worst case scenario, what's best case scenario. And really for me, it was, I wanted to have six months of private practice and our own living expenses saved up. And so that was a certain amount of money for us to save that up so that if things hit the fan, that it was okay where I wouldn't make decisions that were based on money. I could still make decisions on where I was headed. Yeah. Uh, so that was the beginning. It's just basically looking at it. For me, it then was looking at uh, talking to HR and saying, so how does it work if I want to leave? How does COBRA insurance work? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just had those numbers of if I want the exact same insurance for 18 months, what do I need to know? And then actually it was my boss. She said to me, you know, I wish when we had adopted our youngest uh, son that we had taken the full family medical leave act. And I was like, ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Tell me more about that. So so I call up HR and I'm like, so how does the family medical leave act work? Uh, And they said, you know, you can use all your vacation time and sick time and all this. And then you can have this, I think it's 180 days or something that you take off. And so I asked them, so like by law, I could go half time, get paid for those 20 hours and then do that for like six months. And she's like, yeah, there's nothing we could do about that. And so that's what I did. <laughs> sold. I, I sold. So basically that 20 hours I was working paid for our healthcare. So I knew we'd had that. Yeah. We had this six months of savings. I tested it out. The amount that I was making working 10 hours a week, I remember this moment before I had made this decision. I was walking down to my basement office at the college, um, having just left my corner office with the view of the water at my private practice. And I'm walking into this basement office and I'm just like, I am losing money. There are so many people that want to do consulting with me at a higher level than what my paycheck is here. I'm losing money by coming here. Yeah. And that moment as I'm walking into this dark office uh, just really was this light bulb moment. And I think we have to have the analytics side, but you also yeah. have to have the heart side where you have to feel like your family's not going to go down because of your decision. And so for me, I lined up enough of those things. And then ultimately, it's still a risk. You know, you, you yeah. jump ship. But if you've been watching the numbers for a couple of years, it's really easy to predict where you're probably headed. Yeah. Very well said, very well laid out there that it is. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you definitely have the heart, the emotion side of it. And like you said, that you're not guaranteed jack squat. You're, it's still a risk. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it's kind of a big, fairly simple math equation, you know, of just this is how much we have going out. And like, if we really strip things down, this is the bare minimum, what we need. What are we regularly bringing in on the business side? And are those numbers aligning? And hopefully we're, we're yeah. bringing in more than we're putting out. So it's, yeah, a lot of it just comes down to, 
grabbing a spreadsheet or grabbing an old fashioned pen and paper and, and doing the math. Totally. Cause then, I mean, then you can also say, well, how many weeks a year do I want off? Do I need right. to just have two? Uh, how many days a week do I want to work? So a couple summers ago, my wife and I decided let's just do an experiment for the summer. If I take Fridays off, like let's see if the business goes down in profits. It didn't. So the next summer I had kept Fridays off and I said, let's just try to take Mondays off and see what happens. And so the profits kept going up. And so it forced me to be even more efficient to work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then also set those boundaries around what am I going to do on Mondays and Fridays so I can check a little bit of email, but that's about it. And so I think having these experiments where you test it out, you watch the numbers, and then you really look at what's the kind of lifestyle you want to live. Like when you get to how much you charge for consulting, how much you charge for your keynotes, how much you charge for your mastermind group, because in order to live within this boundary, the math says you have to charge at least this amount. And so you've just reverse engineered it, tell you what your rates have to be. Yeah. Very well said, Joe. Hey, man, if people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, I know you've you've given this has been really, really practical. I've really enjoyed this. So if people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, where can we go? Yeah. So practiceofthepractice.com is where I'm at. I'm on all the major social media. I have a free webinar over at practiceofthepractice.com forward slash ideal client that people can learn about how to sketch out their ideal client to start their process to attract that ideal client. Beautiful, man. Well, we'll link up to all that and uh, we appreciate the time. Cool. Thanks a lot, Grant. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mr. Joe. Good stuff there. Again, check out what he's up to and check out his site over at practiceofthepractice.com, practiceofthepractice.com. Hey, we really do appreciate you listening. We appreciate you tuning in. And uh, would you do me a favor? If you're digging the show, if the show's been helpful, would you share it with someone? You don't have to share it with the whole world. I mean, you certainly can. I, I, I'm not going to be opposed to that. But we'd love for you to share it with like one specific person. Just maybe text someone, email someone and say, hey, you know, there's this podcast I listen to. I know you're interested in speaking. I think this would be helpful to you. Just send it to one person. Can you do that? Will you do that? You promise? Come on. Come on. Pinky pinky promise. We're in? Okay, deal. Hey, also, we'd love for you to leave us a uh, rating and review, especially on iTunes. That would really help us out. iTunes, Stitcher, I don't know, wherever you listen to uh, podcasts, we'd appreciate that. So yeah, I think that's it, my friends. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.